Amen. Matthew 11, we begin in verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. And I might just add there that the term Elias in our authorized version is a reference to Elijah, the prophet we've been studying. And now if you would look over in chapter 17, the context here of the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's read beginning in verse 1. After six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. 
And then turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We begin in verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 17. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to verse 17. From Luke 1, this last verse we just read, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We've covered the historical narrative pertaining to the prophet Elijah. And I guess, and in the minds of some, that might have made for um, a fitting conclusion to our study of the prophet. We have been studying the prophet Elijah for a number of weeks. Evidently, A.W. Pink thought that that was a good closing point for his study, for in his book, and I'm rather surprised at this, actually, uh, he goes no further than the historical narrative in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, and you may have realized this uh, to some degree, but the name Elijah, we read it often in our uh, authorized version, Elias in the New Testament, that name occurs no less than 30 times in the New Testament. Reference made to Elias or to Elijah. You find uh, a very close connection, and we'll get into this along the way, between him and John the Baptist. And you find reference made, and this is what we'll focus on uh, quite a bit this morning, to the spirit and power of Elijah. It seems fitting for me, if we make this our last uh, study, of the book, and we may do one more. We'll see how the Lord leads that way. Because we find mention of the prophet, we find an association with the prophet and John the Baptist, but we also find, and we read this from Matthew 17, that the prophet himself makes an appearance in the Mount of Transfiguration. In uh, Matthew 17, and I love the account of the transfiguration in Luke's gospel, 
And we may have occasion to look at that because there is given to us in Luke's gospel what I take to be a very important detail that the other synoptic authors don't, uh, don't divulge to us. And that is they show us a little bit about the discussion between Christ with Moses and Elijah. Luke tells us that they spoke of Christ's decease, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, rather very important detail there about what this discussion uh, looked like with Christ and Moses and Elijah. But for now, we focus largely on what you could call, I guess, uh, chronologically, uh, the first occurrence of Elijah's name in connection with the birth of John the Baptist. Okay, and that takes us to the text. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As puzzling as it may be for some prophetic experts to figure out, an angel from heaven and Christ himself make it clear that John the Baptist fulfilled prophecy. The very last words of the Old Testament contain that prophecy, and that's why we read from those words. Let's look at them again. You just have to flip back a little ways, just uh, right behind, or in front of, I guess you could say, Matthew's Gospel. In Malachi chapter 4, and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. I have heard it remarked by some preachers, just what an astonishing verse that is. In the very last verse of the Old Testament, you have the potential of the earth being smitten with a curse by God on account of the sinfulness of this earth. And yet the thing that would prevent that from happening would be the sending of Elijah, which corresponds, as we see, uh, to the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing a people for the Lord in order that the earth need not be smitten with that curse or that final judgment. If you flip back a page also in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, another verse here that I think corresponds to the same thing, we read, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So as puzzling as this may seem uh, to some uh, theologians, preachers, if you will, that give themselves over to a great degree to the studying of prophetic scriptures, 
we have here a very clear indication that John the Baptist fulfills prophecy. As three of Christ's disciples descended with Christ down the mount where they had just seen him in his glory, they put the question to Christ about that. Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Matthew 17, 10. His disciples are referring to the scribal teaching that Elijah would come before the Messiah came. And in answer to their question, Christ says to, the, to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. That's in Luke 17, 11. The scribes understood the passage correctly, but then Christ goes on to say in verse 12, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And then note what verse 13 tells us. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptists. It's uh, always a great benefit, isn't it, when the New Testament itself gives you uh, the proper interpretation of what's being said. And lest there be any doubt, we also have Christ's statement in Matthew eleven fourteen, where he says, And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. The next verse in Matthew 11, I think, gives an important key when it comes to understanding uh, prophetic statements where Christ says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 15. The things of God, you see, are spiritually discerned. Let him that has ears to hear, let him hear. It takes the right kind of spiritual understanding or the understanding of spiritual concepts to be able to understand the book of God aright. Now the statement that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophetic statements that refer to Elijah, I know creates headaches for prophetic experts because it displays so plainly an example of prophecy that was not absolutely literal in its fulfillment. It wasn't the actual person of Elijah that was to come, it was rather someone who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, that one being John the Baptist. In the New Testament accounts of John the Baptist, you can see many parallels, many connections that can be drawn uh, between Elijah and John the Baptist, many ways in which he manifests the power of Elijah. Elijah was the prophet, we've seen this in our studies, that called down fire from heaven. The nation of Israel had corrupted itself with the false religion of Baal worship. Elijah called for the prophets of Baal to set up an altar and place a sacrifice on that altar. He would do the same. We saw that back in our study of chapter 18 in 1 Kings. 
Each would call on their God, and the God that answered by fire would be known as the true and living God. And God did answer Elijah by fire, and the nation was moved to fall on their faces and proclaim, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God. 1 Kings 18.39 And for a time, a brief time unfortunately, the hearts of the Israelites were restored to God. John the Baptist, you could argue, accomplished the same thing through spirit-filled preaching. And rather interesting to keep this in mind, when you go from Malachi, the last chapter in Malachi, and you flip the page over to the first page in Matthew's Gospel, and you have, in the flipping of that page, covered a period of no less than 400 years. The intertestamental period, during which the voice of a prophet had not been heard. And there were no unusual phenomena like what you had with Elijah in Old Testament times. But now, uh, quite suddenly, quite out of the blue, okay, you have John the Baptist preaching with Holy Spirit power. And while there was no visible falling of fire the way you had in Elijah's day, the spiritual impact was the same people coming under conviction of sin, people who were made aware of the reality of God and consequently saw their need to repent of their sins and be reconciled to God. The thing I wonder when I read of Elijah or John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, the thing that I wonder this morning is this is such a spirit of power restricted to a couple of prophets of renown? Is it out of place for you and for me, for us as Christians, to desire such a spirit of power in our lives and in our witness? And I believe that the answer the Bible gives us on numerous occasions is that the Christian can and should, even must, seek this power for his own life. After all, where did this power come from for Elijah and for John the Baptist? What does this phrase even mean, the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, that's obviously a reference to that third person of the Trinity, who is the source of power in the Christian's life. It is the Holy Spirit that empowered both Elijah and John the Baptist. And so we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 13, and I know I've referenced this verse often. It's one you should highlight, memorize, utilize, where Christ says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Oh, Lord, give me the Holy Spirit today. Now, I know just as I say that, there is a sense in which I'm asking, and you would be asking for that which you already have. 
for the Holy Spirit does indwell us. That being the case, though, really largely because that is the case. Oh, blessed Spirit of God, I want your power, and I need your power. Grant to me your power for this very day. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, again, Christ speaking, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now listen to what the verse says, because it describes to us what happened through the ministry of John the Baptist. This is John 16, the Gospel of John 16 and verse 8. And when he is come, when the Holy Spirit is come, that I will send to you once I depart from this world, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Oh my, if ever there was a day we needed the Holy Spirit to do that very thing, wouldn't it be this very day in which we live? And isn't that what happened when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness? Souls were convicted of their sins. Souls learned of righteousness. They were reminded of judgment. And so I would put the matter to you again, I believe very plainly, and with the authority of God's word, we must seek the spirit and power of Elijah. On a personal level, for our Christian lives, I'm reminded of Elijah's disciple Elisha. We might have done well to have spent one more study looking at the transition between Elijah and Elisha. Maybe we'll come back to that. When it came time for Elijah to depart to heaven in a fiery chariot, he said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee that a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. 2 Kings 2.9 That's a good thing for every Christian to ask for. And I'd like you to think with me this morning on a few reasons why. These reasons can be expressed in three single words, unity, submission, and boldness. Unity, submission, and boldness. We must seek the spirit and power of Elijah, first of all, to establish and maintain unity. Look with me again, Luke's Gospel, verse 16. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The unity described in verse 17 can be described, first of all, you might say, as a household unity. Note that it says that the spirit and power of Elijah serves the purpose of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. Now, fathers, grant you, can be used in a more broader sense than 
merely biological fathers, but it certainly does apply to them in that sense too. Spiritual decadence is easily discernible in a nation when a generation grows up with little or no spiritual interest. It certainly would seem to be a trend among prosperous nations that have known the Lord's blessing that interest in material prosperity grows and interest in the things of the Lord diminishes. That's just a sad phenomenon of history, I'm afraid. I'm reminded of that generation of Israelites that conquered Canaan. They rose to be more mighty than their parents, who could do no better than to wander in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And yet then we read in the book of Judges, chapter 2 and verse 10, that generation were gathered unto their fathers, that is, the generation that conquered Canaan, the Joshua generation, if you will. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. My, what a glorious generation was that Joshua generation, but I'm afraid you couldn't say the same thing of the generation that came after them. It's not hard to detect why the next generation forsook the Lord. They had the benefit, you could argue, of luxury and ease. The land had been subdued. Canaan had been conquered. Life, arguably, had become easy. And when life becomes easy, and I'm afraid we all know this in our experience, Worldliness grows. And so they began to envy the world around them, desired to be like the world around them, and in time they adopted the customs of the world around them and sought to conform their religion to those customs around them. How disturbing it must have been to that former generation who had conquered Canaan and had proved the Lord's power and faithfulness to watch their children slip away from the Lord. Under Joshua, they had practiced the strictest discipline, realizing that Achan's in the camp could not be tolerated. I suppose it became tempting to become lax in that discipline once the land belonged to them. Maybe their own worldliness infected their children. At any rate, when one generation loses out and houses become divided, it becomes necessary to gain nothing short of the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. The verse indicates to us very plainly that it's a spiritual problem, 
that leads to the dividing of households. And spiritual problems can only be solved with spiritual solutions. And in this case, the spiritual solution involved the turning of hearts. Oh, that we might have spirit-filled and spirit-led homes where such a spirit is manifested, Christ has the preeminence, and where Christ has the preeminence, our homes should become like heaven on earth. Look with me, if you would, at a couple of verses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, this is chapter 11, and verse 18. We read, Therefore shall ye lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house, and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Oh, if our homes are functioning properly in that regard, then our home should fit that standard. Here's as close to heaven as you can get in this world, heaven on earth, God-fearing, Christ-honoring homes. And to the degree that households fall short of the standard described there in Deuteronomy, to that same degree that household needs the spirit and power of Elijah to bring that household up to that standard. It's a matter, to be sure, of discipline and consistency, and it's also a matter of spiritual vitality. And that part is so important, spiritual vitality. How can we speak of the things of God when we sit in our homes and when we walk by the way unless we're keeping close to Christ so that he's a living Savior and not just some ancient historical figure? Thank God that by his grace, he imparts the spirit and power of Elijah for the express purpose of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children when houses are divided. May he work in us and in our children to give repentance to both and to enable us to magnify Christ in our homes. Would you notice from our text back in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that not only are homes united by the spirit and power of Elijah, but ignorance and rebellion, disobedience is the word given in the text. Disobedience is displaced by the wisdom of the just. Disobedience, it might be argued, is traceable to pride and ignorance. In his sinful pride, man seeks to set himself up to be the king of his own little universe. And such pride can only find room to assert itself where the knowledge of God is missing. 
I'll point this out, you know, since we're going to be um, looking again soon at those Paul Tripp videos. You remember how often, we've seen this already in a number of the sessions, how often Paul Tripp makes reference to the kingdom of self. I am the king. So we like to reason. Where the spirit and power of Elijah becomes manifested, however, the fear of the Lord subdues pride, and the knowledge of the holy replaces ignorance. We know that in our land today there exists a great divide between those that profess faith in Christ, who know something of the fear of the Lord, and those who don't. It's only where the fear of the Lord is missing that sin can be sanctioned to the degree that it's being sanctioned in our land today. And something more than political leverage is needed to bridge such a gulf. The need is great for the spirit and power of Elijah to be manifested through our lives that the hearts of the disobedient may be turned to the wisdom of the just. And so we need to seek this power for the sake of our homes and for the sake of our nation. Nothing short of the power described in our text will suffice to establish and maintain united homes and a united country. Nothing short of this power will suffice to keep a church or a denomination united. Oh, may God then indeed give to us all a double portion of the spirit and power of Elijah. So we need such a spirit for the sake of unity. But consider with me next, secondly, that we must seek this power to enable us to live the Christian life. We need the spirit and power of Elijah to enable us just to live the Christian life. Never mind the doing of great exploits. We need this power just to live the Christian life. When three of Christ's disciples accompanied Christ into the Mount of Transfiguration, they beheld his glory, and they became all the more convinced that he was the Son of God. As Christians, we love those mountaintop experiences with Christ. We love the experience of having our hearts filled to overflowing in the knowledge and truth of Christ's love and his grace and his mercy, we would confess with Peter, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Oh, it would be our desire to stay in the mount of blessed experience with Christ. But alas, it can't be so. We have to descend back down the mount to the world. I remember a preacher once making a very encouraging observation that even though we can't stay up in the mount of blessing where Christ is transfigured in his glory, even though we must descend back down to the world, what a blessing it is to know that when we make that descent from the mount back to the plain, so to speak, Christ comes with us. 
He is with us. The Christian life is uh, not all blinding, majestic glory, so to speak. It does enter back into the realm of the mundane, but Christ is with us, just as he was with them when they came down from the mountain. And it's on the way down the mountain that the disciples put the question to Christ regarding Elijah, and Christ answers by saying that Elias is come already. And as verse 13 indicates to us, the disciples understood that Christ was speaking to them of John the Baptist. But would you note what else Christ says about John the Baptist in verse 12? I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Or do you know the story? I'm sure, I hope, you know what became of John the Baptist. He was arrested, he was apprehended, and eventually he was executed. He was beheaded. Christ tells his disciples that he himself, that is Christ, would suffer the same kind of fate. Of course, his suffering would be different, but the outcome would be the same. They would be executed. Christ, you see, did not require John to tread a path that Christ himself would not tread. John the Baptist was called upon to be conformed to Christ even in his death. He calls on you and me to follow him the same way. When we think about conformity to Christ, we're prone to think in terms, aren't we, of that transfiguration experience of Christ in the mount. Here is Christ shining forth in his glory with a radiant splendor that the authors of the gospel struggled to find words to describe. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light, Matthew says. And as we behold him in his glory, the thought that grips our hearts is that we're to be like him. And we shall be like him. We're to be like him at least in some measure now. And then we long to walk in this world in such a way that our countenances display in some measure this radiant splendor as the joy of his salvation and his peace that passes understanding fills and thrills our souls. And that's all wonderful, and that's all true, and that's all keeping with our sanctification. But that's not the entire picture. That's only part of what it means to be conformed to Christ. Another part of that conformity requires us to be conformed to his death. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 3 and verse 10, where he writes, "...that I may know him." and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And what does this conformity amount to but submitting to Christ's will in a world that is hostile to Christ and toward his grace? 
How do we, indeed, how can we submit to Christ in the midst of a world that hates Christ? That's something we ought to be considering these days, because that hatred is only going to become heated with the passing of each passing day. How do we submit to Christ in the midst of a world that hates Christ? The answer is, we need the spirit and power of Elijah. We need that spirit to minister spiritual truth to our hearts, especially the truth that this world is temporal, this world is passing away, this world is to be burned up with fire. When Christ paid tribute to John the Baptist, he said that among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And then Christ makes a statement that helps us keep the things of this world in their right perspective when he goes on to say, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I believe that that saying teaches us very simply that glory is promotion. Leaving this world, going into glory, going into heaven, going to be with Christ, that's promotion. Our need then is for the spirit and power of Elijah to impress that truth on our hearts. And when the truth of Christ's love is impressed on our hearts, then we'll confess, as Paul confessed, that in all these things, in all these afflictions, in all of these trials that we endure, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul goes on to write, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8. I know I've shared with you on numerous occasions a very simple prayer that I remember Dr. Allison praying as we were on our way to work together. And he prayed, Lord, give us the grace to believe the gospel today and we'll be able to endure whatever you see fit to bring our way. The spirit and power of Elijah won't exempt us from discouragement. Elijah was discouraged. We saw that, didn't we, when he fled from Jezebel. And I believe John the Baptist was discouraged when he was put in prison. Neither prophet understood why things were happening the way they were. Neither prophet expected things to fall out the way they did but both found the grace to submit to God's mighty hand. Both were beloved of God at all times. That's why we must seek the same spirit. We must find the grace to submit to Christ, even when we may not understand what Christ is doing or why. We may not understand his every dealing in our lives, but this much we can understand when his spirit ministers to our hearts, he is with us and he is for us and nothing can separate us from his love. He is with us and he's for us because he shed his blood on our behalf. 
Let that be the lens through which you view every circumstance of Christ. Had an interesting final day with my students in theology this past week. We were dealing with a phenomenon that is called theodicy. I have to admit, I'd, I'd never heard of that term until I found a cross-reference to it in Dr. Cairns' theological terms, his dictionary. And what theodicy basically is, is an attempt on the part of some theologians to reconcile God's justice with his providence. And it is applied to such things as trials and calamities. Uh, how can it be said that God is just when he allows terrible things to happen? And there is a paragraph, I wish I would have thought ahead of time to have uh, highlighted this or copied it and included it in my notes, but there was a very concise paragraph in that article that I know must have come right from Dr. Cairns. Wasn't quoting anybody when he wrote that. Basically what he said is that the world reasons from their sufferings back to God and then demands from God that their sufferings be relieved even though they're living as rebels against God. The Christian, on the other hand, needs to reason through the lens of the cross of Christ to his sufferings. Recognizing that when you view life and every circumstance of life through that lens, then you will be convinced that every dealing that God takes with you is a dealing that springs from his love because nothing can separate you from his love. And when you know that, well, arguably, in a sense, you will have known then the spirit and power of Elijah. So we need the spirit and power of Elijah to establish and maintain unity, unity in our homes, in our church, in our nation. We need the spirit and power of Elijah to enable us to submit to Christ, to take up our crosses and follow him and then we need to seek the spirit and power of Elijah. Thirdly, finally, briefly, to empower us with the courage of our convictions. We need the spirit and power of Elijah to empower us with the courage of our convictions. Oh, how we need that in days like today. I picked up a book off my shelf not really sure where I even found the book. May have found it at Half Price Books. A book by Erwin Lutzer, who I think now is the pastor emeritus at Moody Church up in Chicago. And the name of the book is We Must Not Be Silent. And it really is a strong appeal to the church not to cower in fear in lieu of all the cultural uh, brashness and boldness and intimidating fear that's being put on the inhabitants of this land in order to promote all manner of ungodliness and moral perversity. We must not be silent. And when you think of Elijah or when you think of John the Baptist, what's the first thing that strikes you about them? Isn't it their boldness? 
Elijah comes out of nowhere and boldly proclaimed to King Ahab there would be no rain. And he boldly stood before 450 prophets of Baal and mocked them before he called down fire from heaven and proved that his God was indeed God. And John the Baptist boldly preached and was fearless when it came to exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, and he was just as fearless when it came to exposing and denouncing the sin of Herod, the thing that ended up getting him in jail and eventually executed. And it was with a bold spirit of certainty that he called upon his followers to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, I'm not about to suggest this morning that in order for you to manifest the spirit and power of Elijah, that you should go to work tomorrow, stand on a table in the midst of your fellow workers, and start denouncing their sins and their need of salvation. Yeah, I'm not going to suggest that, although, mind you, if you feel so compelled, uh, you need not fear coming under church discipline either. Okay? But that might be a little extreme. But on the other hand, don't we have to sadly confess that all too often we act as if we're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've often been struck by Paul's statement in Romans 1, verse 16, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And the thing that I find striking about that statement is that he's writing that letter to Christians. He's telling Christians, I'm not ashamed. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, he writes in verse 7, chapter 1. And why is Paul moved to write to Christians that he's not ashamed of the gospel unless it be that he understood perhaps that there are times when Christians need to be reminded that they should not be ashamed of the gospel either. Aren't we living in days that call for the people of God to openly own that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners? Aren't these days that call for the people of God not to cater to sin or to condone sin or to be indifferent to sin, but rather to expose it and lament it and then endeavor to see souls delivered from it? Oh, how we need the spirit and power of Elijah to make us courageous for our Savior. Now, the way we'll gain the spirit and power of Elijah is to be constantly beholding our Savior in his glory. When Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, Elijah answered him by saying, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. 2 Kings 2 and verse 10. For Elisha to gain what he sought required that he behold the glory of God, which he did. When the chariot of God appeared and took Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, 
And if we will behold Christ in his glory as he's revealed in his word, then we too can gain the spirit and power of Elijah. We have to see him in his glory as he's revealed in his word at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. We need that spirit. We need it to establish and maintain unity in our homes and in our land. We need it to enable us to submit to Christ, come what may, and we need it to empower us to be bold for Christ in days such as these, days of wickedness and hypocrisy. Such a spirit comes when the people of God see their need for it, earnestly seek their God for it, and strive to behold Christ in his glory. Oh, may we be characterized in this church as people that have that kind of spirit. Not everyone will appreciate us having that kind of spirit. We may and certainly will draw the world's scorn and contempt. But on the other hand, we'll have Christ's approval and the assurance of knowing that we're contributing to the advancement of his kingdom. And that is much more valuable than having the world's acceptance or approval. Oh, may God then in his grace give us that spirit and power of Elias. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning, we do confess that we are wholly dependent upon thee. We cannot stand, O oh Lord, in fleshly courage. Peter thought he could, and how he learned differently. And Lord, spare us from attempting such a vain thing. We're wholly dependent on thee. And so, Lord, we ask thee, and we remind thee in our asking that thou hast given us a promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit to those that ask thee for him. We thank thee, blessed Spirit of God, that thou dost dwell within us. And now we're asking thee that thou wilt manifest thy power in us and through us, to unite us in our homes and in our church and to other Christians and to enable us to submit to Christ no matter what comes and to grant to us the courage to stand unashamedly for the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, hear our prayers for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.